0: This time it's my privilege to invite you to open a Bible to the book of Colossians. Paul's letter to the Colossians in chapter 3. If you'd like to use one of the Bibles that we have provided for you in the seat in front of you, you can find this morning's text located on page 984 in those red Bibles underneath the seats. Page 984 in the red Bibles. Colossians chapter 3 and it's verses 1 to 17. Well, over the last seven weeks, we have been in a sermon series entitled Slaying the Seven Deadly Sins. A Lenten series study from the book of Proverbs. Starting just one week prior to Lent and then during each of the successive Sundays of Lent, we took on what have become known in our culture, as the seven deadly sins. Pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, and lust. Over this past season, we've learned much about what these sins are and how they seek to function in our lives and derail our lives, and also what it looks like to increasingly put them to death through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The seven deadly sins are common. They are resident in every single human heart. And yet, as we've come to acknowledge, they are nothing to mess around with. For example, we've learned that pride is not just one of the seven deadly sins. Pride is the soil in which the seeds of all the other six grow. What about envy? Well, envy is the unknown cause of much of our relational woe. But the gospel is the unparalleled cure. And anger? Well, so anger, anger is the one deadly sin that if we only knew how to do it better, we'd be far better off. This is the only sin in Scripture and certainly in the list of seven where the Bible says, be angry and do not sin. So if we were only good and angry, we'd be far better off. Let's not forget sloth. Because if we don't get a vision for putting sloth to death, then sloth will be the death of our church's vision, our 2020 vision. about greed? Our culture is awash in a tsunami of greed. So our church must stay awake to the symptoms of greed. And then we have gluttony. Like everything else in this life that's not Jesus, food is a great gift. Didn't we experience that this morning? Food is a great gift gift but you know what it is a lousy God it's a terrible God and finally last week we studied lust and we did so without apology because God views the sin of his people he views the sin of his people as spiritual adultery and therefore lust is the ultimate parable of all sin not the ultimate sin but the ultimate parable it's the ultimate picture of sin in action Pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, and lust. And we've, we've said it before, but we'll, we'll say it again. It bears repeating. These are the battles of our lives, are they not? All of us, to one degree or another. And remember, one of the things that makes this particular list of seven so insidious is these aren't, as sometimes we think of them, separate, several seven separate sins, um, hermetically sealed away from one another. They are not seven separate sins. They are seven interlocking sins. We've come to think of them over this last week as a complex intertwined root structure that exists in the garden of your heart. And this root structure is what gives rise to all of the other sins that don't make this list. There's a whole lot of other sins that don't make the list of seven. And they're equally as deadly. One of the features that makes this list unique then is that these are not so much fruit-level sins as they are root-level sins. So we should not only conceive of these as, we should not conceive of these as seven distinct sins, but perhaps more like seven species of sins that give birth to hundreds and hundreds of other forms of iniquity in our lives. And furthermore, because these sins lie at the root of, of all of our personal problems, that means that what the world will suggest to us as our major malfunction, as our greatest struggles in this life, simply aren't our greatest struggles. Uh, Suffering, depression, anxiety, addiction, marriage and parenting issues, these are the symptoms of the problem. They are not the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is that our hearts are the matter. And that being the case, what we've come to see is that these sins being so pervasive in our lives and so deeply, deeply entrenched in each of our souls, we need serious help in dealing with them. And in Jesus Christ, that is precisely what we have. In fact, our condition needs nothing short of a crucifixion and a resurrection. Would you follow along with me as I read Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 to 4. Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 to 4. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Mount Evangelical Free Church, please listen closely. Christ's cross is the place of your crucifixion and his empty tomb, the hope for your resurrection. I'll say that again. Christ's cross is the place of your crucifixion and his empty tomb, the only hope for your resurrection. If you're a Christian here this morning, even if I don't know anything else about you, I know these two things. You have died and you have been raised. If you're a Christian, that's true of you. That's what Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 3 says. Says. And this death and resurrection, you'll notice, isn't yours alone. Rather, it's actually yours through participation in the death and resurrection of another, namely Jesus. This is pointing to the doctrine of what we call union with Christ. A Christian is united to Jesus, both in his crucifixion death and in his resurrection life. If you know Jesus, this is true of you. There's an old gospel song that likes to ask, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when he rose from the grave? Well, the answer to both of those questions for a Christian, according to Holy Scripture, is a resounding yes. Yes, I was. Yes, we were. Colossians 3.3 says, you have died And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3.1, if you're a Christian, you have been raised with Christ. And notice the the nature of the language here. The fact that you are a Christian, if you have died and you have been raised, these are realities that have happened to you. These are passive experiential truths. You and I contribute nothing to these realities. We have no more control over this death and resurrection than we have over the stars in their courses or the tides on the seashore. For the cross and the empty tomb aren't the work of a mere man. They're the work of the God-man. When we turn from our sins and we put our faith in Jesus Christ, what we discover is that God has joined us to his Son. The Bible says that this union with Jesus came into existence if you're a christian it came into existence before creation itself we are in him before the foundation of the world the bible says if you're a christian your union with christ is a reality that was true in the days of his incarnation in the days of his perfect life and his suffering and his substitutionary death on the cross as well as his victorious resurrection if you're a believer god has always thought of you in special relationship to his son And the most remarkable aspect of this is that it's all of grace. And if I could stress anything on the front end of this sermon, that's what I'd want to do in this moment. Because if you are with us today, and you're not a Christian, there is an absolutely essential component of the gospel that you must understand at this point. The gospel is not behave The gospel is believe. Believe in Jesus, in His life, in His death, in His resurrection. If you're with us today and you're not a Christian, did you know that you can leave here one? If you came into this place a sinner separated from God, you need to know that Jesus came to seek and to save folks just like you. You may have come in here separated from God, but you can leave here united to him by grace through faith in Jesus. So I call you to turn away from your sin and to place your faith entirely in Jesus Christ. The Bible says we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, alone. Now, as we're going to see, saving faith in Christ is never alone never alone faith apart from works is dead and in the remainder of our time this morning i want to display for us how active and how lively a thing this faith this christian faith really is but in this moment each of us need to recognize this morning that while good works are certainly the fruit of saving faith they most certainly are not the root of saving faith The good news of the gospel is the ground of our acceptance before a holy God is the person and work of Jesus Christ, and nothing that we contribute to that. Now, what I want to do with the rest of our time this morning is to consider just what flows from saving faith in Christ. What does the normal Christian life look like according to the Bible? Perhaps you can already see that what the Bible considers to be the normal Christian life is quite a bit different from what the average 21st century American might consider to be the normal Christian life. These are two different realities, often, entirely. We know this because of the thesis statement here this morning that sums up the text in front of us. If you are a Christian, Christ's cross is the place of your crucifixion, and his empty tomb is the hope for your resurrection. That being said, we've got two points of application today, so let's get after them. Here's the first. Union with Christ involves both excruciating death and pulsating life. So number one, die to your indwelling sin. Union with Christ involves both excruciating death and pulsating life. So die to your indwelling sin. You know the word excruciating It's a word that was coined to describe this reality. Excruciating literally means out of the cross. Out of the cross. And this is what the Christian life looks like. We saw this on Good Friday, if you were here with us two nights ago. The big idea in that sermon was that Good Friday marks the celebration of Christ's death. And if you are a Christian, yours as well. Union with Christ means that when he died for sin, you died to sin. And furthermore, by the Spirit's power, you can and you must kill your sin. That was the message on Good Friday. You died, now kill it. In Christ, you are dead to sin, so put your sin to death over the course of your Christian life. This represents what we sometimes call the already not yet of the Christian life. In Christ, we're we're already dead to sin. In Christ, we must put our sin to death. And If that baffles you, I'm not sure that there's much help for it because this is just the way that Paul talks in Colossians chapter 3. This is the series of commands that we find in Colossians 3, 5 to 11. Take a look with me. Colossians 3, 5 to 11. We know we've died according to verse 3, so he says in verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, This catalog of sins, dark as it is, is rather familiar to us, isn't it? Over the course of the Lenten season, we sought to study and understand from the ground up many, if not most, of what Paul mentions here in one word or another, one phrase or another. Verse 5, verse 8, verse 9, it's a reflection of the seven deadly sins and more. What I'm particularly drawn to in this passage for the purposes of this morning are some of the things that Paul says in between that thread these lists together. For example, take a look at verse 6 once again. We read, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. I, I hope you read footnotes. Especially in the Bible, I hope you read footnotes. For instance, if you have an ESV translation in front of you, there's a footnote that explains how some copied manuscripts of this letter have five extra words added to this verse. Those words, according to the footnote, are as follows. Upon the sons of disobedience. So with those words, Colossians 3.6 would read this way. On account of these... The wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Now, it's not just a footnote phrase. It's a biblical phrase. Uh, the Apostle Paul speaks this way in Ephesians 2.2. 2. In Ephesians 2.2, 2, this phrase, the sons of disobedience, it refers to, to unconverted people. Ultimately, it's a reference to those not only who haven't currently come to saving faith in Christ, but who never will in the final analysis. And only God can know the identity of such a person. Now, ultimately, it's an expression referring to the damned as opposed to the saved. Now, the reason the translators of the ESV don't adopt these five words into the translation of verse 6 is that because although Paul knew and used this phrase in his writing, it's likely the case that he would not have used such a phrase in the original manuscript of this letter. The translation has it right. Because that phrase would have had the effect of knocking the wind out of his argument. Paul is addressing Christians here. He's not addressing Christians actually. He's warning Christians here. And you have to admit, leaving verse 6 the way that it is, it sends a shudder down the spine of any believer. It ought to. It's designed to. So let's get personal here. Over the last seven weeks, we have studied seven sins. Many of us have walked away from this Lenten study, I would be among this number, duly convicted that we find ourselves not only tempted by these sins, but if we are honest, actually participating in these sins, pursuing these sins as we said several of them are right here in Paul's list sexual immorality impurity passion evil desire covetousness which is idolatry verse 6 on account of these things the wrath of God is coming so why would we make a study of the seven deadly sins over the course of the Lenten season because on account of these things the white hot judgment of almighty god is imminent it's coming do any of us truly know how much longer it's going to be we need to be awfully careful that we not play games with the holy god the language here in verse 6 is spine chilling he's not sounding an alarm to the unconverted here this is an alarm to the converted this is for the sheep it's for saints, not for sinners. This is for saints who sin. It's an awfully stern warning to believers. So is Paul's language in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Listen to Romans 2, 1 to 5. He says this, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, in the church, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. He's talking to the church. And so we have in Paul's conclusion here in verses 7 and 8, what he says here only makes sense in light of verse 6. So let me list our seven deadly sins. Read verse 6 into the first half of verse 8 in order to catch the force of this. Pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, lust. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Into, in these, you two once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Now that's hopeful. I don't know if you see this, but he's beginning to turn the corner here. In verse 7, he says, When you were living in them. This verse refers to a habit of life. And he trusts that the Colossians are not participating in this habit of life an unrepentant habitual course of sin that is not native to the life of a true believer. Now remember, indwelling sin will always be a part of our lives. It just will be. From, from womb to tomb we will always be indwelt by some measure of sin. 1 John 1.8, 1 John 1.10 says that explicitly. We will always be indwelt by our sin nature to some degree in this life. You know you're a Christian. Not by the perfection of your life, but by the direction of your life. So it's not the presence of your sin that's the ultimate issue. It's the absence of repentance. Of grief over your sin of sorrow over your sin and a sincere desire to turn from your sin, renouncing it, forsaking it, and moving in the direction of Jesus, full tilt in obedience after his call. That's repentance. Not the presence of sin in your life, but rather the absence of repentance. That's the big issue. So are you dying to sin if you're a Christian today? Are you learning to hate and to hunt your sin? Are you living for the very sins for which Christ died? If so, that's treason. And your king won't abide it, not for long, not ultimately. I don't know precisely which battle you're facing this season. It's likely a combination of the seven deadly sins. It's that way for me. I'm here to call you today to keep fighting. We quoted him on Good Friday, but it's worth doing once again. My hero, John Owen, wrote this in 1656. There is not a day but sin foils or is foiled, prevails or is prevailed on, and so it will be so while we live in this world. Mortification, the killing of our sin, is the soul's vigorous opposition to self By the way, this is why the mortification of sin will never be popular in America. Because the mortification of sin is the soul's vigorous opposition to self. Owen says, make it your daily work. Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Union with Christ involves both excruciating death, that's the excruciating part, and pulsating life, so die to your indwelling sin. Now, the second application this morning goes like this. Union with Christ involves both excruciating death and pulsating life. So number two, live in the strength that God supplies to the glory that Christ deserves. If you know me well, you've heard me say that live in the strength that god supplies to the glory that christ deserves if you know me you know this is one of my favorite summons to give about the christian life live in the strength that god supplies to the glory that christ deserves i learned that truth from passages like 1 peter 4:11 where peter says whoever serves let him do so in the strength that god supplies so that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory forever and ever. Amen. I've learned this truth from passages like 1 Corinthians 15.10, where Paul says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And yet his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though not I, but the grace of God working in me I've learned this truth from passages like Colossians 129 possibly one of my favorite verses in the Bible Colossians 129 Paul says regarding the mission to be and make disciples of Jesus he says for this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me what kind of power is that Paul well it's it's resurrection power it's the power of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. I learn truths like that from passages like this one too. Listen to the way that Paul talks now. We'll finish reading our text. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. In Colossians 3, 12 to 17, we read, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, Humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving one another. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts Now, if there were time, we would stop at every verse and every phrase and do a proper exposition of this paragraph if we were working through Colossians that way. But it's Easter Sunday, so we'll be content with something short of that. However, if we attempted to do that, we would be here until next Easter. So let's do something different. I just want to limit limit myself to one overarching comment about this paragraph and then how that links with the first part of our sermon text today. What Paul outlines here in verses 12 to 17, namely compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearing, forgiveness, and above all, love. What Paul is sketching here is is a portrait of union with Christ as it works itself out in the trenches of your family, my family, and in the local church. In fact, it's this paragraph that flows so seamlessly and supernaturally from the one that we just spent time in. While verses 12 to 17 may not sound like any family or any church that you've had the privilege to be a part of, The fact of the matter is that Paul considers this to be the goal of every Christian family and every local church fellowship that centers herself on the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, yeah, but these verses seem to be describing something like a heavenly reality. To which I say, exactly. That's exactly right. This snapshot in verses 12 to 17 on the one hand is a practical effect of putting our sin to death Verses 5 to 11. But on the other hand, living out the truth of our resurrection in Christ. Head back up to verses 1 and 2 with me as we close. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. And the reason he gives for this is verses 3 and 4, as we've seen. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I heard Dr. Don Carson say one time that uh, oftentimes we complain of those who are so heavenly-minded, they're of no earthly good, Well, the fact of the matter is most of us are so earthly-minded, we are neither good for heaven nor earth. Isn't that true? And so, we need to press into this here as we close. Heavenly-mindedness. Note, first of all, that verse 4, at the end of that reading, verse 4 speaks of the return of Christ. Paul says, When he who is your life appears that's the return of jesus this is the point at which jesus comes in the future we don't know when this day will be but we know just as sure as he came the first time that he's coming a second time and at this point when jesus comes to rule and to reign to set up his kingdom on this earth it will be evident who the true believers are it will be obvious this verse says New Testament scholar Peter O'Brien puts it this way, the day of the revelation of the Son of God will also be the day of the revelation of the sons of God. Is that clear to everybody here? When Christ comes for a second time to establish his rule and reign on the earth, there will be no mistaking who his people truly are. They are those who have sought to put their sin to death by the power of the Holy Spirit, as well as to live in the strength that God supplies to the glory that Christ deserves. They've consistently sought to put off sin, that's verse 5, as well as to put on the new person that God has created them to be in Jesus, verse 12. Putting off, verses 5 to 11, putting on, verses 12 to 17. And here's the key. The means for this transformation is discovered in verses 1 and 2. That's why we went back up to verse 1. The first command in verse 1 is clarified by means of a second command in verse 2. Verse 1 says, seek the things that are above. And verse 2 tells us how. Set your minds on things that are above. The word mind here is uh, not just our brains, although it certainly includes that. I would just argue that it's not less, it's just more. The mind that Paul speaks of here is also our affections our wants, our desires, our wills. It's our heart. That's what Paul's talking about here. It's our whole-souled response to all who God is for us in Jesus. And the reason we can do this in Christ is that we have died in Christ. We have been crucified to this world and this world to us. And therefore, the key to living verses 12 to 17, because that's where we want to live our lives, Verses 12 to 17, the key to that is investing your whole life in verse 2. Verse 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on the things of the earth, for you have died. This is a call to each and every one of us to a fresh pursuit of God in Christ through Holy Scripture, reading and meditating on the Word of God written. It's also a call to saturate our minds with solid Christian books Remember books? Instead of loading them with social media, Christian books. And then finally, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How does that happen? Well, he tells us if we just follow him there. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So the absolutely foundational, non-negotiable role that musical worship plays in the life of the local church is here, in our families and in the church gathered. This is part of why, as we announced on last week on Palm Sunday, that we have plans as a church to host Matthew Smith and the Indelible Grace band in this sanctuary come September. Much more on that in the days ahead how you can be a part of that, how you can get tickets, and how they plan to serve us, September 22nd, Friday. But this is a big part of the mind of transformation. If you've been raised with Christ, live like it. Union with Christ involves both excruciating death and pulsating life, so live in the strength that God supplies to the glory that Christ deserves. Well, Christ's cross is the place of your crucifixion. And his empty tomb, the hope for your resurrection. Union with Christ involves both excruciating death and pulsating life. So number one, die to your indwelling sin. And secondly, live in the strength that he supplies to the glory that he deserves. If you are a Christian, one day, and that day may be sooner than you think, your battle against pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, lust, that battle will be over. I can't wait. It'll be finished. And that great day will come either when you take your last breath on the battlefield or when King Jesus returns to rule and reign over his kingdom. Either way, this war will be won. So if you find yourself, wherever you find yourself in your battle against the seven deadlies this morning in this season, please take heart. Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it through to the day of Christ Jesus. It's a promise for you to lay hold of this Resurrection Sunday. May this morning mark the beginning of a brand new season for each of our lives here in this sanctuary. As we pursue our mission to be and make disciples of Jesus as a church, as we chase our 2020 vision, Christ's cross is the place of your crucifixion and his empty tomb, the hope for your resurrection. Let's pray.